Galatians chapter 2. Let me encourage you to make sure that you are in attendance for church next Wednesday evening. It's going to be a very unique service. All of the pastoral paid staff will be gone. Uh, Pastor David and Pastor Michael will be in New Jersey at the Vision Conference that Solid Rock Baptist Church holds. And yours truly will be with his wife and children in the Poconos on vacation. Um, I'm, I would say a much-deserved vacation, but I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, we'll be there. We'll be in a church service somewhere Wednesday night, but it won't be here. And so um, we had to work really hard to make this happen. So um, we're just going to let you all figure out what to do. The Quakers, you know the Quaker churches, how they work, right? They open the door, you walk in, you sit down, you meditate. If you have something to say, you stand up and say it. And everyone just kind of listens. Should we have one of those services next week? (laughs) No, we've got it planned. We've got it covered. Uh, Brother Jacob Okai is going to be preaching. Uh, Brother Brother Okai and, and his wife have been members here for 31 years. And this will be Brother Jake's first time preaching uh, in a church service. And i got to tell you, I wish I was here to see it. Uh, I'm excited for it. No pressure, Brother Jake. No pressure. You'll do great. Um, well, Brother, uh, Brother Jake took over a Sunday school class for us, an adult class for us, uh, Brother Verone's class, actually. He's been doing just a great job with it. And so that will be an encouragement. Brother Scarpetti is going to lead the singing, and Brother Owens is going to moderate the service. So you want to be here. And you can give me a report on how everybody does when I get back in town. And so, uh, but no, that, that'll be good. Continue to pray for our, our neighborhood Bible time week. And uh, the two young men who have come in, college boys that have come in to help us, they are just doing a phenomenal job. Uh, they, they, they're prayed up. Uh, they're studied up. They're polished. They're working hard. You ought to see, uh, if, you're not, if you're not doing anything tomorrow at 9 o'clock, let me encourage you to come on over and see it. Uh, the, uh, uh, Daniel, the young man who uh, is in charge of the uh, first to sixth graders, he is, he is energetic. Boy, he is. Those of you that are seeing him, doesn't, isn't he doing a good job? He's just doing a great job. And then um, uh, Michael, um, not our Michael, but the Michael that's coming in town, he's coming in town. He's doing a great job with the teens, preaching his heart out to him. Be in prayer for that. Uh, my wife and I are overseeing the second grade. We had... 14 in there today, 14 second graders in the bookstore. That was something. And then um, uh, one class had 19 today. And uh, I know in my class there's at least three kids. You can tell they're under conviction about getting saved. But we're letting them tell us when they're ready. We're not twisting any arms. We're not forcing anybody into a decision. Uh, but when you ask how many of you here would like to, uh, how many of you don't know that you're going to heaven and would like to talk about that, you can just see the struggle on their, their little faces. And so i, I got to say, we've probably had, just to put a low estimate on it, 8 to 12 people saved this week. But there's got to be 15 to 20 more kids that are under conviction and need the Savior. We've had a lot of kids from the community come, and they've seen signs around town, and they've showed up. They're not, they're not families that are not part of our church on a weekly basis, but the kids are hearing the gospel, uh, both in here uh, with the evangelists and then in their classrooms. And so pray that those children get saved. I hope you'll commit to that between 9 and 12 o'clock tomorrow and Friday. If you'll bow your head and just pray and ask God to uh, work in their hearts, 
uh, that would mean a whole lot. God hears those prayers. They do make a difference. So let's stand tonight for the reading of God's Word. Galatians 2. Pray for me as we're going through the service tonight that my voice holds up. Three sermons on Sunday and then an hour and a half um, uh, all week and then tonight. And we got uh, Thursday and Friday to go. So I uh, pray that God sustains my voice we get through the evening. Galatians 2. 16 through 20, it says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We'll continue our study. We began last week out of the book of Galatians, entitled Legalism in the Church. Legalism in the Church. Let's pray. God, as we continue our study tonight, would you help us to uh, grasp, uh, Lord, an important truth uh, that uh, the church, churches of Galatia seem to have out of balance. And, Lord, help us not to have these out of balance. Lord, I don't know that there, are, uh, there would be anybody here that is trusting in works to get them to heaven. Although there could be that, and Lord, if so, help them to see the error of that and to be saved tonight. But Lord, one thing that I know is prevalent in many churches is this attitude that I must work in order to have God's approval after I'm saved. And Lord, while we should work, you love us regardless. And so help us to work because you love us, not so that we can get you to love us. And Lord, impress these truths on our heart tonight. Help us to leave here tonight with a better understanding of your word. And so your word can go forth in our heart And make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All right, quick recap of last week and we'll finish up the outline uh, here tonight. So, legalism in the church. If there is an accusation that is hurled at Baptist churches in 2018, it is that we are narrow-minded, stiff legalists. Last week I asked how many of you have ever been called that, and I think 80%... Of the crowd, oh, you go to one of them legalistic churches. Eighty percent of the crowd raise their hand. Um, legalism, by its pure definition, is not holding to a high standard of living. Legalism, by its pure definition, is believing that you must hold to a high standard of living in order to get to heaven. It's attaching good works to get saved. And so, by that definition, uh, there are many legalistic churches out there. The Catholic Church is a legalistic church. Now, I don't think they deny that. I don't mean that to be an insult. That's just what they are. They believe you've got to do good works to get to heaven. That's just what they believe. And if you were to sit down in a priest's office and ask him what he believes, that's what he'd tell you. You've got to be a good person to get to heaven. Well, that is a legalistic church. The Church of Islam, or the mosques of Islam, the religion of Islam, that is a legalistic religion. You've got to behave a certain way and hold to a certain standard in order to obtain whatever it is they call the good afterlife. And Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and even a lot of the Protestant religions, Lutherans and Episcopals and many, many of the Methodist and Presbyterian churches, they are legalistic 
churches, legalistic churches. Now, um, the churches of Galatia were struggling with this. Now, I didn't hit this last week, but really quick by way of introduction, I think this would be good. Prior to First and Second Corinthians, we or prior to Galatians, we covered First and Second Corinthians. I love how smart God is. Aren't you glad that we have a smart, intelligent God? In First and Second Corinthians, the problem with the church is that they knew that they were saved by grace, so they were abusing the grace of God. They knew they were saved. They had their fire insurance, if you will. So they said, hey, we can live however we want. We can eat whatever we want in front of whoever we want. We can sleep around with whoever we want to. And I'm saved and I'm not going to lose it. And they were abusing the grace of God. And so Paul wrote two very strong letters to the churches of Corinth or to the church of Corinth saying, hey, knock it off. Don't you dare abuse the grace of God. Then on the very, very back end of 2 Corinthians, the very next book he wrote was Galatians. Had, in the Bible, it was Galatians. In Galatia, the churches of Galatia, by the way, it wasn't one church in Galatia. It was the churches, if you look at chapter 1, the beginning there. Churches of Galatia. They had the opposite problem. They believed that they had to hold to the Torah, the legalistic laws of the Torah. They had to eat meat that was kosher. Their men had to be circumcised. They had to respect and follow the Sabbath. And they had to hold to the Torah in order to please God. And Paul is writing and saying, hey, to those churches that I started and to the other churches that I didn't start, but I had a great uh, influence on, hey, at one point you believed salvation was an act of grace, of the grace of God and your faith in it. And now you're doing a 180 and you're going the other way because you've had these false apostles come in and preach an apostate or a false doctrine. And they're telling you that you've got to hold to this rigorous standard. And Paul says, that's not how it works. And so uh, Paul here is defending this very, uh, defending several things. Well, let's, let's jump into the outline and, um, and by way of review. And I'll, I'll give a couple of comments and we'll jump into uh, the uh, blanks here. Number one, notice the corrupting of the gospel message. We looked at this last week, but verses 6 down through verse 10, Paul is very strong and even uses uh, a little bit of sensationalism to get his point across. He says, listen... If someone comes in amongst you and they're giving you a different version of the gospel that I gave you, let them be accursed. He said, I don't care if it's an angel. Let them be accursed. Now, Paul was being sensational by writing, even if it was an angel. But boy, how that would come into play with Islam and Mormonism. Right? They claim an angel gave them their gospel. Well, Galatians 1 already deals with that. And so the corrupting of the gospel message, these false apostles had come in and wooing and wowing and waving uh, the legalism of the Old Testament law in their face and saying, no, 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 you get to heaven by keeping this. Number two, notice the composer of the gospel. Verses 11 and 12, Paul makes it clear that this is not my gospel. This is the gospel that was revealed unto me by Jesus Christ. I didn't compose the gospel. Jesus composed the gospel. And Jesus is the gospel. He is the gospel. Jesus is both the one that wrote the song and he is the song. Jesus is both the one who wrote the book and Jesus is the book. And so he's the composer of the gospel message. And Paul is saying, don't, if you want to argue, don't argue with me. You got to argue with him. Because I'm giving you his gospel. Notice number three, the credentials of the Gentile apostle or Paul, the credentials of Paul. And uh, Paul went on to say, look, I'm not an apostle called of apostles. 
I'm an apostle called of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went in and talked about there how that once he was lowered out of the basket in Damascus, you can see Acts 9, 19 and 20 for that. But after he left that uh, spot shortly after being saved, he didn't go to Jerusalem to get trained. No, he went to Arabia. He went to the backside of the desert. And for three years, three years, he was in Arabia. And if you look back at verses 11 and 12, again, just a quick recap, it was Jesus who personally trained him while he was in the desert, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how that uh, Paul was the one that penned some of the deepest, richest doctrines of salvation in the book of Romans and Ephesians and, and, and even Philippians 2, we find the deep deep doctrines of salvation. Well, where did Paul get all of that knowledge and that ability? Well, God personally trained him and taught him on the backside of the desert. He goes on to say, look, yeah, I went to Jerusalem. I was only there 15 days, and all I saw was Peter and the brother of of Jesus, James. That's all I saw. And I was not called of other apostles. So what were the credentials of the Gentile apostle? Jesus personally sat him down and taught him and, and trained him. Number four, notice the clarification of the gospel message, the clarification of the gospel message. Again, remember that many of these uh, uh, folks in these churches had gone from believing that salvation was an act of Jesus and his grace to believing that somehow it was reliant upon them. Now, we'll cover this in, uh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks when we get there, but the book of James. You ever been reading the book of James, which was written to Christians, and saw where it said, faith without works is dead? You ever read that? And it says, show me your works without your faith, and I'll show you my works by my faith. Faith without works is dead. And you read that and thought, this is a crisis. This is contrary to everything I've read. Do I have to work my way to heaven? How many of you ever, in any point in your Christian life, read that and thought, oh boy, we got a problem? Any of you? Okay. Uh, well, it is faith plus works that gets you saved. But you have to remember, it's not your work. It's His work. And after you get saved, it becomes your faith is manifested by the works you do for Jesus. And look, you can have all the faith in the world, but if you're not willing to put your feet to the faith, then that faith does nothing. I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's how I got saved. And Paul is saying here, we looked at our, our justification and our consecration under there. And uh, verse 16 talks about that. And by the way, if you ever meet someone who thinks they've got to work their way to heaven, take them to Galatians 2.16. It, it, it ends the argument. Ephesians 2.8.9 is on the spot. But Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's pretty seal-proof, isn't it? Uh, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't see anything about getting baptized in there. I don't see anything about church attendance in there. By the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. That sounds like what Paul told the Philippian uh, jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That we might be justified. And verse 20 goes on to say that because I'm justified, I ought to live my life in a consecrated way. Number five, we looked at the consistency of the Christian life. The consistency of the Christian life. Moving into chapter 3, we talked about how that we're justified by faith. But not only are we justified by faith, but the just live by faith. So you get saved by faith, 
And then you are labeled or you're deemed or viewed by God as just because you continue to live in the same faith that saved you. It is your faith that gets you saved. It is your faith that makes you sanctified or cleaned up. You understand that? It's not by following some rigorous set of rules that God laid out in the Bible that uh, makes you just. No, because you're walking by faith, you automatically begin to follow the rules that are laid out in the Word of God. And by your faith, you obey them. And by your faith, God labels you as just. It is faith that God is looking for. That's why Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. It's impossible to please Him. Let me ask you this. This is a, 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 We'll get into point six here in a minute. And, and just to recap, or just to finish off last week's message. That questionable action, everybody look up here. That questionable action that you're involved in in your life right now. Can you really look at God and say, I'm doing this by faith in you? If you can't, you need to stop. Well, yeah, but God, I'm, I'm smoking this cigarette by faith. No, you're not. You're destroying the temple God gave you. But God, I go to all-you-can-eat buffets every week, and I, I, I pig out, and I gorge my body, and I'm doing that by faith. No, you're not. You're doing that to satisfy your flesh. But, but pastor, I'm having, I'm involved in this steamy affair and, and, and I'm involved in this extramarital relationship or this premarital uh, relationship. Are you really going to look at God and say, I'm doing that by faith? If you're not doing it by faith, it is a sin. And if you are living your life by faith, then God labels you as just. And you can see Galatians chapter 3 for that. Let's jump in tonight to uh, the outline uh, that we have left that we didn't cover from last week. Notice number 6, the completer of the Old Testament law. Fill in the blank there, the completer of the Old Testament law. If you need a bulletin, uh, if you just hold up your hand. And uh, we can get we can get one over to you. Just keep it up till you get one. Hold it up there, brother Mike. Do we have any leftover bulletins? We're all out. I'm sorry, we're all out. We'll have to print more next week. We've been printing extra, and then my administrative assistant is in Germany, and my replacement secretary didn't know how many to do. So my my, my apologies on that. But uh, uh, you can write it down on the back of a envelope there in front of you. All right? They're better. It's that's better than putting gum in it. Some of you ever put gum in there? Or when you were teenagers, you'd write love notes on it and pass them down the pew. Maybe I'm telling on my own sins. I don't know. Okay, number six. The completer of the Old Testament law. Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse number 13. It says there, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promises of the Spirit through faith. Uh, so, the completer of the Old Testament law. Here you have Jesus being born as an Israelite, coming along and being the only one capable, as an Israelite, to 
to hold to and obey the law and then endure the curse, endure the pain, endure the punishment of all of his own race that broke the law that was given to his race. And he, in essence, comes along and fulfills the law that nobody else could. He was the completer of the law. Notice uh, there, letter A, notice under that the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. Uh, what, what, why was the law given? And by the way, those who want to worship the law and hold it high, notice that the law wasn't always around. The law is a temporary thing. The law was not around prior to Moses. You all understand that? Abraham didn't have the law to obey. God looked at his children as they're wandering through the wilderness or heading toward uh, uh, the promised land there. And he said, look, oh boy, these guys, they need it written out clear. Uh, I remember when I went to uh, Bible college, they gave us this really ridiculously long rules handbook. And they, they told us we had to read it every semester. And I remember opening that thing up and some of the rules in there were so ridiculous. I mean, stuff like you're not allowed to put a soda can... Uh, in between the screen and the glass window. And I thought, who would even think to put that in the rule book? And so, very frustrated, I walked to um, someone on staff and I said, so, and I had a bunch of them, I said, these are dumb. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be, you know, a bad student. Or These are dumb, why are these in here? And he said, you know, every one of those rules got put there because in the 30 plus years of the college, somebody forced our hand in putting that in there. He said when the college started, that thing was really little. Well, God was smart enough to see all the rules that the Israelites would break ahead of time and go ahead and have them written down. That's why the Pentateuch is so long. Because on top of telling us about how they broke the rules, it tells us what the rules are. And so uh, the rules were given because God knew, hey, these these children of mine, this nation of mine that I have chosen and, and blessed and, and, and have and I have uh, uh, made my own, they're going to need some guidelines. So the purpose of the law, it points out our sin nature. It points out our sin nature. What were the rules there for? Well, to tell us, hey, you are under the sin curse now. The sin curse was there prior to the law, but the law helped solidify the fact that we're sinners. It helped give us uh, a standard. I would liken it to you, uh, I think if I could illustrate it this way. What if you went to a school, grade school, you went to grade school, and there were no classroom rules? And the teacher just said, well, we're all going to just do our best to behave, and I'm going to do my best to teach you. And then with no rules, you looked over and you started talking to your friend in the middle of class. And your teacher jumped all over your case. You think, well, you can't jump on my case. There's no rule against talking. Right? I I might be interrupting the flow of learning in the classroom, but there is no rule. Now, mankind couldn't help but sin, but the sin had to be made very clear what it is. So God had the law put out. And that showed them, hey, you have a problem. And that problem is that you have a sin nature. You have a sin nature. Let me just be clear on this. We all have a sin nature. There is this weird philosophy out there that we are born uh, good and the corrupted world makes us bad. And i got to say, i got children. Don't try that one on me. I didn't teach my children how to lie. They figured that out pretty quick. 
And I didn't teach my child how to cry in the middle of the night for no apparent reason to wake me up. You say, well, what'd you do? I rolled over and acted like I was still sleeping so Angela would get him. <laughs> how many of you men ever did that? Be honest. Some of you are like, the statutes of limitations have run out, so you can't get on me anymore for that. Um, it points out our sin nature. We're all born under sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. It says, wherefore then serveth the law? That's the question. Because those who were pushing this legalistic uh, works-based salvation were saying, well then, Paul, if you're undermining the law, then what was the purpose of the law to begin with? Wherefore then serveth the law? Paul poses the question on their behalf, and he answers the question. It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So that seed to come would be Jesus. But you see there, it was added because of transgressions. It was added because you are a sinner. And it was added to point that out. So we're talking about the purpose of the law. Look here, letter B, or rather underneath the purpose of the law. Notice, it acts as a schoolmaster. It acts as a schoolmaster. Now, let me just say this. God did not give us the law so that we would do our best to keep it so that somehow we could earn God's favor so that he could let us into heaven. That's not how it works. Brother Verone, you're here tonight. I can remember many, 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 many times over the uh, time you were here standing on a porch with someone, neither you or me, going over Galatians 3 and saying, it is a schoolmaster. It is not meant for you to try to keep it. And trying to convince some Catholic soul that you can't work your way to heaven. Look at Galatians 3 verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You know why the law is there? It's there to show you that you can't. It's there to show you that you are lost. You have no hope. This week I had uh, lunch with a, uh, a man who is uh, related to a person in our church. And I asked him, I said, how does a person get to heaven? And he said, well, you you got to keep the Ten Commandments. And I smiled at him. And I said, how you doing with that? And he's like, well, I'm trying. I said, hey, I'm the preacher. Can I tell you a little something? I have broken all ten of them, either in the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. All ten. I said, are you doing better than me? He looked at me and said, probably not. I said, keeping the law is not possible. Keeping the law is not possible. Why did God give us the law? To show us where the standard was, yes. But to show us that we're totally incapable of keeping it. Letter B, notice, notice the problems with the law. The problems with the law. Paul is going to say, look here. The, the law was good, but there were some problems with it. Notice, first of all, it was temporary. It was temporary. Look back, look back at chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Wherefore, then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions. Notice that next word, till. Till the seed should come. Who was that seed? Jesus Christ. So the law was only there to be from Moses until the Messiah. That's it. 
That was it. The law was not to be worshipped or bowed down to or held high beyond Moses. All right. And, and, and those of you that might be a little confused, with that, I'm going to I'm going to make sure that you understand I'm not undermining the law. Jesus said himself, I'm not coming to do away with it, but to complete it. But the law in and of itself, standing on its own two legs, that was supposed to be a temporary measure. So not only was it temporary, but it needed a mediator. Look at the end of 19. Look at the end of 3.19, it says, And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, if the law was perfect, it wouldn't have needed a mediator. But it needed somebody to come along and complete it and fix it. And the person that came along was, was Jesus himself. So, again, God gave the law to Moses, knowing that it was not there to show them or to tell them, keep the law and you can get to heaven. It was there to, to tell them, here it is, and, and, and here's the standard. You won't be able to keep it, but at least you now you know what it is. And if you don't keep it and, and you, don't get, uh, you don't get forgiven because you didn't keep it, you're going to suffer under my wrath. Along comes Jesus, an Israelite, uh, a disciple. Of Moses, and he comes along and he completes the law. He suffers the wrath of all of those before him that did not keep it, and he endures the wrath of God and he completes the purpose of what the law was there. That's what we call the era of grace. Jesus brought about the era of grace in his death, his suffering of the wrath of God for those who didn't keep the law, and uh, because of that, he, he was able to give us eternal life. Now, look down at chapter 3, verse number 17. Notice there it says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed because of God in Christ the law, which was 430 years, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, i got to tell you, that 430 years stumped me for a good long time. I, what, what is that 430 years, and why is that number randomly thrown right in the middle of this passage? Uh, this was God's uh, promised covenant. Uh, it's given to us. Uh, oh, hold on. This was so. This was from the moment. If I, if, if my uh, recollection is right, this was the moment that Jacob got up uh, from Bethel all the way up until the giving of the law. Four hundred and thirty years there. But let me move on. God's promised covenant is greater than our practiced law. God's promised covenant is greater than our practice law. Look back at verse number 17. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, 430 years, cannot disannul that it could make the promise of none effect. God's promise, covenant, the promise to... To, to Abraham, the promise to Isaac and on down is greater than any ability to keep the law. You say, well, what was the promise to Abraham? That someday uh, uh, someone would come from his seed and die uh, for the sins of the world. That promised covenant is greater than any ability to keep the practice uh, law. Requi- uh, the, the practice law required, uh, 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 hold on a minute here. So the, so the law required non-Jewish Christians to observe the law. Uh, and acts as if Jesus didn't fulfill the promise or deal with our sins. These, these legalistic people coming in the church saying, you must keep the law in order to get to heaven. What they were saying was that, hey, uh, the acts of Jesus, what, they didn't mean anything because, uh, 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 believing in Jesus doesn't do anything for you. It's still the keeping of the Torah that God is looking for. And I would say it was never the keeping of the Torah. It was even in the Old Testament, it wasn't about the keeping of the Torah. Abraham was saved by faith and so was everybody else. Let's move on and look at number seven, the contrast 
of legalism and liberty. The contrast of legalism and liberty. Look down at chapter 5 and verse number 4. 14, rather. Chapter 5 and verse number 14. It says, therefore, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk, um, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So here we're getting what it looks like between living under the law and living under liberty. Liberty found in the grace of God. Notice letter A. This fits with our sermon Sunday night. The law of the Torah only enunciates what's right. The Torah only enunciates what's right. Here's a big problem with those who say you've got to work your way to heaven. Your sinful flesh fights against this idea of being good. We can come to church and look all cleaned up, but if all we're relying on is our flesh to somehow keep a a law, let me remind you, your flesh is in itself immoral. You listen to me? The law is moral. So if the expectation is that an immoral flesh keep a moral law, that's asinine. Because it's not possible. That's like telling a cat, in order to get to cat heaven, you've got to bark your whole life. It can't be done. You might get your cat trained to bark every now and then, but telling a cat he's got to bark to get to cat heaven is crazy. And telling a sinner he's got to keep a perfect law to get to heaven, that's insane. That's nuts. What did the Torah do? It enunciated what was right. It said, this is What is right? You're sinful, but at least now you know what it is that God expects. Now, uh, to contrast legalism, and that's what legalism is, it's the belief that somehow you got to keep a perfect law with an imperfect uh, flesh. Uh, uh, But but contrast with that, the law of the Spirit also, it doesn't only enunciate, or it doesn't only enunciate, but it empowers us to do what's right. So throw the next slide up there for me if you could. Here's how this works. The argument going on is the law is important. The law is important. The law is important. And let's be kind toward those who are pushing the law. Anytime that you've had thousands of years of being under one system, and now all of a sudden you're adjusting to a new system, there's going to be some stragglers. All right? Uh, we call those, we call those lagging adapters. You have early adapters. You got those who slowly or maybe in that mid-range, and then you get those who hate change. How many of you in here hate change? You just can't stand it. Pastor Pezlak announced he was resigning. You're like, oh, man. Now we've got to get used to some new preacher. And then the new preacher got here, and some of you, man, you were fired up to get a new preacher because you like, you like to be on the, earth, the, the, the edge of change. A new trend comes in, and you're already on it. Some of you are holding on to trends that belong in the 1970s. I've got to tell you, keep holding on to them because they're coming back really soon, okay? Uh, but uh, uh, some of you hold on and you don't like change. And it takes you time to kind of get used to change. When you get there, you're happy. Then you get those who just won't ever accept it. 
And that was what was going on here. They were leaving the law and they were entering grace. And they'd been there now for a few years. And there were people who just kept pushing the law and pushing the law. And Paul was coming along and saying, listen, I'm not trying to devalue the law, but all the law did was tell you what was right and wrong. The spirit of God comes in and enters a Christian and not only tells him what's right and wrong, but empowers him to do what's right. You see the difference there? In the Old Testament, they didn't have the Spirit of God indwelling them to help get them to do what's right. He was not empowering them. They were living under a system that told them, here's what's right and wrong, but you're immoral and you can't do it. And, and under this system, they had the Spirit of God inside of them saying, uh, the Spirit of God saying, this is what's right and wrong. Now, I'm going to help you to do what's right. Now, I want to just make sure I make this clear for anyone who's confused. People in the Old Testament could still get saved, just like people in the New Testament get saved. Here's the biggest difference between those who lived under the law and those who live under grace. In the, under the law, they looked forward, they were on this side of the cross, they looked forward to a coming Messiah that would die, and they believed. After they believed, the Holy Spirit did not indwell them. So they're still under this law of having to try to obey it with no Holy Spirit help along the way to help them. They still got saved by faith in the coming Messiah. Now, we're on this side of the cross. We look back at the fact that Jesus died for us. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit comes in and lives inside of us. And now he not only tells us what's right and wrong the way the law did, he empowers us to do what's right and wrong. Those sinful habits that you picked up as a sinner, the Spirit of God begins to pick, prick you in the heart and say, Hey, that's not right. Let me help you do what's right. And you begin to submit to the Holy Spirit and He begins to empower you. The law enunciated what was right and wrong. The Spirit not only enunciated, He empowers you to be able to do what's right. Number seven, and lastly, notice the cultivation of the spiritual fruit. Turn over to chapter five and look at verse number 22. And by the way, before I read verse 22, prior to this, we get the fruits, uh, the, the, the fruits of the flesh. Let's look at those really quick here. Look at verse 16. This I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what is the fruit of the flesh or the lust of the flesh? Verse 17, for the flesh lusts have the spirit. Uh, skip on down. Skip on down to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft or drug dealing, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath. Uh, number uh, 11, there are strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers. Number 16, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before as I have also told you in times past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So the works or fruits of the flesh that come natural by our sin nature are all of those things. And the law spoke against them, but so does the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, when he's put in control, boy, he brings about a totally different set of fruits. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. These fruits are of the Spirit. Letter A, notice our temperament. Our temperament. When someone does something you don't like, 
Do you treat them with wrath, strife, hatred, envyings, vengeance, anger? Or do you treat them with love? Do you maintain a spirit of joy, even when people are nasty toward you? Are you peaceful on the inside, even when you're going through problems? Are you long-suffering toward other people that are broken and treating you like a broken person would treat you? Are you gentle? Are you gentle? Someone blows up on you, yells in your face. Do you blow up back or do you... you that person who has soft words that break the bone. Goodness. Goodness. Faith. You, you shrug your shoulders in a hard time and say, Well, I don't know what's going on, but I know my God is bigger than that problem. Or do you go, Oh, man... I just don't know about this. Oh, I just don't know. God, is, are you uh, are you bigger than my problem? We may not say that, but our behavior dictates that we lack faith in an all-powerful God. You face a medical crisis. You face the loss of a loved one to death. You, you, you face financial uncertainty. And you step back and you go, God, I'm in this relationship crisis. I, I, I just don't... I, I don't know what to do, and, and I'm worried about it. And God says, wait a minute, I'm bigger than your problem. I'm bigger than that diagnosis at the hospital. I'm bigger than the debt that you owe and you don't know how to climb out of. I'm bigger than that. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? These are fruits that show a temperament that is of someone who is allowing the Spirit of God to call the shots in their life. How many here tonight are saved? Would you raise your hand if you put your faith in Jesus? The Holy Spirit's living inside of you, but that doesn't mean He's controlling you. I don't mean to beat a dead horse. We've been preaching about the Holy Spirit on Sunday nights for, for weeks, and most of you have been here for this. But the Holy Spirit is something that's cultivated with time. I talked about Sunday night how that you don't go out with a farmer and, 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 and tear up the field and, and remove the rocks and the, and the sticks one day and go out the next day and expect to see fruit. No, the next day you go out and put the seeds down. And then the next day you get the irrigation system going. And then months later you start to see little sprouts coming out of the ground. And then sometime later those sprouts turn into trees. And then sometime later that tree begins to bear fruit. My friend, you gotta keep doing the right things over and over and over again before the temperaments of the Spirit begin to show and, and, and bear fruit in your life, begin to show evidence in your life. You don't order the fruits of the Spirit off the McDonald's dollar menu. You don't order them and get them ten minutes later. That takes time. Some of you for years have been quick to blow up when things don't go your way. You say, well, pastor, how do I change that? By every day apologizing to God for that sin and asking the Holy Spirit to bear the, the fruit of patience in your life. And one day you'll wake up and you'll see that you have temperance, long-suffering, and patience in your heart. And you'll say, wow. You'll look back and say, it took me a long time to get here, but he's still working on me to make me what he wants me to be. The temperament. The temperament. What is your temperament like? Let her be notice our treatment of others. And we'll finish with this. Look down at Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. You know what this is saying here? 
is that when we see other people that are living in sin, instead of looking down our pharisaical nose at them and beating them over the head with the Bible, no, instead we fall on our face before God and we weep for them. We say, God, I'm not worthy to approach that person about their sin, but I want to help them bear the burden of the sin they're choosing, and I want to help them get past that. You start treating others with that meekness of spirit that Galatians 6.1 talks about, and I tell you what, God can use you to really, really help people. You know what Galatians 6.1-3 really is all about? It's all about getting the moat or the beam out of your own eye before you go help and get the moat out of someone else's. It's spending that time on your face before God saying, God, I've got my own sin I've got to confess. Lord, I'm nothing. But Lord, I want to help my brother or my sister in Christ through the burden of the sin that they're carrying. I want to help them get rid of that. When you go with that spirit of meekness to others, that's done through the spirit, uh, through spiritual fruit, that cultivation of spiritual fruit. Boy, you really begin to see the Christian life lived brand new. To sum it up this way, those who were preaching this legalistic lifestyle, what they were trying to get at was this. We need the law, otherwise, how will we know to do what was right? And Paul was saying, don't worry about the law. Don't worry about the law. The parts of the law, the moral law that still applies to you today, follow it. But you have the Spirit of God to confirm the moral law and then to help you to live out the moral law. And so tonight, I would encourage you to give your heart to the Holy Spirit. Let Him have His way in your life. Cultivate His fruits. You say, Pastor, I don't know where I'm at in the process. We'll keep it going. I'll finish with this. Brother Owens uses an illustration. Uh, I've heard him use several times. I think it's very appropriate here. And um, it helps us to be able to find our way. I've got to tell you, this illustration has really helped me personally quite a bit. Imagine a train rolling down the tracks. That train decides it wants to come to a stop. It takes time for that train to begin the process of stopping to coming to a stop. Some of you have lived with sinful habits in your life. You begin to put on the brakes to stop that sin. It's going to take a while for that train to come to a stop, especially if those sins are deep-rooted and habitual. But at the same time, you begin the train of right living. And while this one's coming to a stop, this one's beginning to pick up speed. And you turn around one day, and the sin train has come to a stop, and the right living train has picked up full speed. And you turn around and say, wow, that was a process that took time. But I'm so glad that I gave gave and invested the time to get there. And by the way, that process works opposite. You've been living the right way for years and you decide to start doing wrong, that right train takes a while to, to come to a stop as, as showing evidence of goodness in your life. But that sin train begins to pick up speed, and you turn around, and you've, you've gone from sitting in the third pew to sitting on the back pew, and you've gone from sitting on the back pew to missing church a couple of times a week. And the next thing you know, that righteousness train has slowly but surely come to a stop. By the way, there's nothing wrong with sitting on the back pew. All right, Some of you, that's just your seat. That, you, get, you get the point I'm trying to make, all right? So let's make sure that we have the right train rolling along and the other one come to a stop. God is not as much concerned with where you are in your spiritual walk. He's more concerned about the direction that you're headed. So go the right way. Take steps forward. Draw nigh to Him and uh, draw nigh to God and He'll draw nigh to you. James 4 8. Let's have our heads bowed nice closed. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the message uh, from your word. Thank you for the book of Galatians, a church that was worried about the technicalities of obeying the Old Testament law. And God, would we understand the moral law that you have 
completed and left for us to live, but Lord, live under the spirit of your grace. And Lord, live by the spirit as he leads us and guides us into all truth. Lord, may we have the temperaments that you desire for us. And Lord, may we treat others with graciousness and meekness and kindness. Lord, give us a good night. Help us, Lord, to live out what we've heard in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet to be dismissed.